You're listening to the official Dietitian Connection podcast. This podcast gives you access to the most successful and influential experts in the dietetic profession. This podcast will inspire you, it will challenge you, and it will empower you to become a nutrition leader and realize your dreams. Hi, this is Glenn Cardwell. I'm chatting to research professor Jane Scott, who's at the School of Public Health at uh, Curtin University here in Perth. So, Jane, you're back at the, the, the university, Curtin University, where you first graduated um, back in 1979. Thank <laughs> you for that, Glenn, <laughs> my fellow <laughs> classmate. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. <laughs> And you did what most of us did when we graduated, and that was to go straight into clinical nutrition. So what did those early years teach you that you thought you didn't actually get through your course? Well, I think in those days, um, we didn't get a lot in our course um, around the actual practical part of the job. Um, I think we were reasonably well-schooled in the knowledge components. Um, But in terms of the actual people skills... That's where you learnt it all. And, you know, I vividly recall some of my first counselling things, which were, you know, I couldn't work out why people wouldn't, wouldn't do what I was telling them to do. <laughs> That's true. Listen, I've got the answer. <laughs> yeah, and I, I can... I, people wouldn't know about this, but I mean, we used to have the, the weight tables, you know, the, the um, insurance oh, weight yes, things, yeah, which told height, people yeah. what their ideal body weight was, and I would tell people who were 100 kilos that really their goal weight was 57 kilos <laughs> and let's get started. There's none of this sort of motivational interviewing and setting, you know, small step changes. It was, this is where we're aiming for and I'm here to tell you how to get it. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I do remember those experiences too, that people just wouldn't get it. You'd say, well, here's the answer, you know, here's a solution, go away and do it. Come back and see me in two weeks. Um, why haven't you followed mm-hmm. everything? And it has changed. Oh, well, thankfully. Um, Jane, so when you were working um, for Curtin, because, I mean, you went, you went into clinical, then you went back to Curtin, and you were looking after the students there. You were a student mm-hmm. supervisor and a lecturer um, there. And then you did your Master's mm-hmm. at, uh, at Curtin before going on to PhD. What, what was the bit that pushed you towards research? Was it kind of like a... A gentle persuasion from the uni or did you go hey I really would like to do some research yeah no I think mostly initially it was around um, keeping ahead with the from the work point of view and, and needing it for promotion so the first thing was to get a master's and in those days um, all the courses were pretty much just a postgraduate diploma and then when um, courses started offering masters in dietetics, then I sort of needed to get a master's degree in order to keep ahead of the yes. game there. And then it got to the point where once I'd got to senior lecturer, there was no, in terms of a promotion, I wasn't going to go anywhere without a, a PhD. So I think it was that gentle persuasion, but once I was in it, I got sold on it. I, yeah, I really do love research and the opportunities that that gives me. Right. Now, you, you 
I mean, you did your PhD at, at Curtin and some research. I think most of the research was towards breastfeeding or mm-hmm. infant feeding. Do you want to just give us a little bit of an insight into what you got from that research? What, in terms of the skills that I got, or...? Well, what you, guess what you learn as you go along, because you, cause like <laughs> everybody, you, you jump into research and think, mm. well, wow, there's a lot more to this than I thought. But also, it may have triggered some research ideas that you hadn't thought of before. Mm. I think one of the, the first things that I got from it was um, my study was an observational study uh, in epidemiology. And for me, that was probably the perfect type of study to do. And I like the epidemiology. I'm not a lab rat. So I wasn't really interested in doing the mechanistic studies. And just simply doing... One of the things that I found was that, you know, if you if you have a, a good study, then um, a lot of those principles can be applied across whatever you're doing with observational studies. You know, you're looking at exposures and you're looking at outcomes mm. and you just have to... Think of those when you're planning other ones. Um, so I got a lot. I, I really got a nice entry into um, epidemiology because it was in an area that I was really interested in and it was an easy to understand outcome. Um, and there was so much evidence around the importance of breastfeeding mm. and the risks of formula feeding, which we still have trouble talking about formula feeding as a risk we still mm. we talk about benefits of breastfeeding but um that it was um it's an area of interest across a lot of disciplines from midwifery you know, mm. pediatrics um nutrition so so that was a really good entry into to research and and developing those skills in epidemiology um and i've just pretty much moved stayed around those things pretty much in terms of looking at other early infant feeding things so moving on to introduction of solids we've done a lot of studies in other countries where we're looking at determinants and those results have fed into a number of policy um, documents like the breastfeeding strategy for australia and also the infant feeding guidelines. So it's really satisfying to have work that's informing mm. policy mm. and guidelines. And um, a lot of our international students who go on and do a similar style of study, they're also um, uh, providing evidence for policy and guidelines. Because in a lot of um, our countries where our students come from in Southeast Asia, their data is collected with Um, the demographic and maternal health surveys which are cross-sectional surveys and there's lots of flaws Mm. in the design in terms of trying to monitor breastfeeding and 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 surveillance of breastfeeding so their projects which are longitudinal studies are a really rich source of data for their countries to use um, to supplement the other data that they have so I think there's you know I've there's a lot that we get out of it um, and that other people can get out of it. Well, in 996, you went to Scotland. <coughs> yes. Right? Like, so what kind of, uh, to, to work, I might add, um, but what kind of discrepancies or differences did you see between your Australian experience and Australian research and then going into 
Scotland, which I think had a lower, much lower rate of breastfeeding. Oh, that was interesting because I was working at the University of Glasgow and Glasgow has probably one of the lowest rates of breastfeeding, especially in the east end of Glasgow, which is the poor end of Glasgow, where less than you know, 10% of women in those areas mm. actually initiated breastfeeding. So I'd come from Australia where with my infant feeding, my PhD, we, we were up around the 90% at least initiating and 50% still breastfeeding at six months. Mm. So to come to those um, levels with breastfeeding, it was um, really interesting to sort of see those differences and to have people explain that it was all about the weather, <laughs> which was why women wouldn't breastfeed like Australia. And I sort of had to point out to them that I understood that in Scandinavian countries, it was quite cold at time and they had even higher rates of breastfeeding than Australia so um, I did some work on attitudes to it to breastfeeding um, some qualitative research and I sort of really quickly came around to the idea that and the younger listeners won't understand this but there was a real Benny Hill mentality yes. towards breasts um, the dichotomy of the sexual versus the um, physiological role of breast was really, really very obvious. I think I was it was three years that I was in Scotland before I actually saw a woman breastfeeding in public. Mm. And it was commonplace in Perth, um, not everywhere, but, you know, people, in, women in food courts and on buses and things like that. It wasn't that everyone was doing it, but, you know, you, mm. you, you got to see breastfeeding. Um, so there was a big difference with that. Um, just the attitudes and the and the practices and it was that was quite fascinating to sort of look at the you know cultural differences when we're both you know from an anglo-celtic background um, that was really interesting but it's not just the attitude of the women it's the men as well isn't it and as well as society at large yeah, oh, the, the whole sort of thing. And that was that, you know, there was some really interesting news. There was a newspaper column where um, a columnist, uh, I happened to buy a newspaper one night to look for the films, and the, this columnist, and I can repeat it verbatim, and he said, all right, dear, everyone saw you. Now you can put them away. The woman who chose to breastfeed just inside the gates of the Royal Botanic Garden made everyone stay on Sunday. And I was absolutely appalled at this mm. um, this thing. And, and in Australia, and I thought, well, I don't think an editor would let that get into a newspaper. Um, and if it did, there'd be an uproar from the women and there'd be breastfeeding sit-ins and all that. And so I bought that cheap, nasty newspaper <laughs> for the next few nights waiting to see the letters to the editor or the backlash. And it didn't happen. When I was in Scotland, they brought in the legislation about um, protecting a woman's right to breastfeed in public. And, you know, the conversations about, you know, needing to legislate that and mm -hmm. uh, people, the uproar. And on one hand, you know, I, I find it very sad that we have to legislate to protect a woman's mm -hmm. right to breastfeed. Mm -hmm. But other people thought it was outrageous that we should be protecting their right to breastfeed so there's still a you know thing you know quite a lot to do there but I would say that in the time that I was in Scotland and before and it's not due to me they had started this mm. thing they they their rates were improving um ahead of all the other uh, British countries 
they were really putting efforts into interventions and baby-friendly hospital and that, which um, and was making a difference and, and noticeable. So mm. their rates, while still lower than in the south in England, their increases, they were closing the gap yeah. quite yeah. quickly. So after Scotland, you came back to Australia, mm -hmm. back to Flinders, Flinders, Flinders mm -hmm. University. So what was the attraction of, of your work at Flinders and what did you get there? Um, well, I guess the difference, one of the, going back to the difference at Glasgow University was very much, it was the equivalent of a sandstone university, one of the oldest universities mm. in the UK. So my teaching load was light and so I had a lot of chance to do research and the advantage of being in Europe is the proximity to other countries. And I was fortunate in being part of a EU-funded um, multi-centre study, which really gave me some fantastic opportunities to lead one of the work packages in a, um, a study that was involving six countries. So that was great. Um, when I came back to South Australia, um, I sort of came into the position and within a couple of years I was the head of the department there. So that gave me um, quite a lot of responsibilities mm. and opportunities to um, work at a, a leadership level in, in the Faculty of Health and the School of Medicine there. Um, so that gave me some opportunities to develop some skills that I didn't have um, you know, mm. from other things. From the, the the attraction of Flinders was the job was there at the time and I was wanting to get back into Australia. But it was a very special um, time and a, and, a, and a wonderful team there. And so um, in terms of leading the team, they were, they were a very generous team mm -hmm. to lead. So we got lots of good things done. And one of my things that um, I instituted was to um, have a nutrition stream in the Bachelor of Health Sciences, which meant that we created a number of teaching efficiencies and we were able to increase our, our, um, our profitability. And we went from being in the red to being in the black and that then created other opportunities for people to buy back time for research and um, things like that. So that was that was good and there's some real talent there. So while you were in Adelaide, you got cancer. Mm -hmm. And I know you hate the expression cancer survivor, but when you get cancer, what kind of things, or how did it influence you on a personal level? Because you get it, then you have to go through therapy, and then you have to be checked, and yes, you're given the... The, the all clear but does that get you give you an opportunity to reflect on what you should be doing or want to do um yeah it's interesting you should say that because that you know that came up in the possible questions and it's not that I don't like to be called a cancer survivor I guess I just don't think about it in that way because I was very fortunate that um it was detected as part of a another routine thing very early so I had a stage one endometrial cancer and within four weeks I was operated on and I was very lucky I had a laparoscopic hysterectomy which meant that I was up and about and within a week you know sort of able to drive and do all those sorts of things and 
it just felt like I'd had my tonsils out. (laughs) And because I didn't need any of the chemotherapy or the radiation, then it just didn't have that same uh, thing in that it was, you know, it was so early and I, and it was like, well, no use waiting around. I've got to do something. Mm. And I guess that's the advantage of, you know, being back in Australia as opposed to the UK health service where I would have been waiting a lot longer and having private health insurance, which allowed me to very quickly get onto it. We do, we do have to be grateful though, don't we, for the, oh. the level of, of health service we have here. Oh, yeah. I mean, people might complain about it, but, you know, having experienced the NHS um, and the waiting list there, um, we've we've got a wonderful health service. But in terms of what it made me think, I did do the typical thing that, you know, people, I guess in a way I did see myself as having, you know, dodged the bullet because um, I did run a half marathon within 12 months of doing, that was my goal that I'd set, you know, never to be repeated. <laughs> Everyone was saying, you're going to do the marathon next? I said, no, been there, done that, tick. Um, but it did make you reflect on your lifestyle. Um, but it, it, as much as anything, it made me think, well, um, there's those other elements because I thought my lifestyle was pretty good in terms of meeting dietary guidelines and exercising and, and meeting guidelines and that. I wouldn't say that I was, you know, overzealous about all of those, but, you know, the diet was pretty good and the exercise levels, I was always active. So there was an element of me that sort of thought, well, that was the genes and it has it? turned out yeah. actually to be um, a genetic thing in that I carry it, you know, a defective gene that puts me at higher risk for, right. for that cancer and a number of other cancers which I now have my regular checkups for. Uh, of course, well, that's good. <laughs> so there you go, that's a very <laughs> intimate detail thing. Right. Yeah, well, we won't tell anybody about that, don't we? <laughs> that, that's just between you and me. <laughs> and the half dozen people listening to the podcast. Now, you're very well established as an expert in breastfeeding and infant feeding and women's health. And as you mentioned, you... You help write those NHMRC infant feeding guidelines. You've also been involved with the, the World Health Organization, and I know the United Nations have requested your help. So how did that come about? Is that from um, your being known in Scotland, or is it Scotland and Australia? Okay, well, both of them are, yeah, they're really quite opportunistic, and, and I the World Health one wasn't necessarily specifically me per se, that... Um, they were looking for someone uh, to review, um, be part of a review team that was looking at a Masters of Public Health Nutrition that um, was being put up in Cambodia and that the World Health Organisation were helping to set up. And the idea behind that was that at the time, um, people wanting to do a Masters would get, say, an AusAid scholarship or a World Health Organisation scholarship and go... You know, they'd get one person qualified and then often they'd stay in the country and never get, come back. So they were still mm-hmm. very much relying on NGO nutritionists and things like that. So they were wanting to um, to bring up, a co- you know, have their own program. So that was uh, basically just a connection who had been at Flinders University, who was on, in Cambodia, part of their team, 
who then approached Flinders University and um, that's how I got to be on that panel. And the UN uh, one that I did was for the International Atomic Energy Organisation. <laughs> that's not quite the um, agency. And they do all the doubly labelled water things. And at the moment, at, and at the time, they were doing a lot um, around uh, the, uh, breastfeeding. And it's one way that you can actually estimate um, breast milk intake is through this uh, this uh, labelled water. Oh, so mum drinks mum the water. Mum can drink it. Right. It gets labelled. And, and you can do it another way. You can do it with the infant as well. But oh, there's right. two different methods of doing it. So they were wanting, um, they they were putting up an um, a regional project in Southeast Asia and they wanted a, they always then get a regional expert and I was there not for anything around the, um, the uh, you know, the, the doubly labelled water stuff, but as, you know, um, around breastfeeding and oh, because right. of our work that we've done with different groups. So that... But that came about as well in that the person in the UN was someone who I'd worked with in Scotland. So there's, you know, it's not necessarily all reputation. It's usually about who you know or, or opportunistic. Well, it's a good point because I guess people need to realise that you, you can plan as much as you want to, mm. but sometimes there's that tap on the shoulder or that door that opens and you go, wow, actually this is a whole new world. And suddenly you're in a, in a different direction altogether which is what you found oh totally um i mean when i went to scotland some of my my best research things that i am doing so currently i'm involved in an nh mrc um grant that's looking at early childhood caries that simply came a, that whole connection came around from me first off doing a um a, a in service uh, presentation for dental professionals oh. in Scotland um, and then uh, one of the chief dentists there was putting together the sign guidelines which are the Scottish Intercollegiate Guidelines Network for Management of Early Childhood Caries so he asked me to be on that to look at the evidence around um, nutrition and early infant feeding um, and then from there, when I was at Flinders, I went to, I was asked to go to a, um, a sort of a forum that they were having around dental health in children. And I got to talking to people about the whole sort of thing around early childhood nutrition and early childhood caries. And from that made a, a connection with someone at the Australian Research Centre for Oral Popula Population Oral Health and they invited me as a, um, a chief investigator on um, this NHMRC grant which is you know going is producing a lot of data and um, is wonderful and that was just simply by me being prepared to go to Dundee from Glasgow <laughs> to do a you know an in-service thing for dental nurses and the the community dentists so you just never know exactly. <laughs> where, where something like that is going to to lead you so now you're back at Curtin Curtin University where it all started for your academic career so what are you hoping to achieve over the next say two to five years well 
one of the things that now that I'm back I'm, is developing a, um, a research area for training uh, PhD students. So I'm heavily involved now with training um, the next generation of researchers. So looking for opportunities for that. So this NHMRC project that I'm working on has got a PhD student attached to it. Um, we've got another project that's funded where we're doing an intervention around breastfeeding and it's a supporting the supporters intervention where it's about dads. And um, this came from my PhD research which really showed the importance of fathers mm. as support agents mm. for their partners to help it, uh, achieve their breastfeeding goals. Um, so this intervention, we've developed Milkman which is a smartphone app, which is everything you wanted to know or didn't know you needed to know about breastfeeding, written specifically for dads. Um, and uh, so it's those sorts of things. So that's really exciting, getting into the M health and looking at the opportunities about apps, and but really understanding them. Um, I'm working with a fantastic team of young people <laughs> that do all that stuff and have got the know-how. But it's really exciting to, to work with that and to still be learning. And that's what I think is really exciting about um, my, my career. I feel as though, although I've been in academia for most of it, it doesn't feel like I've been in the same job no, for all those no. years. Um, there's always something different. So, I mean, you're very, very well regarded by the profession because you're both an advanced APD and a fellow of DAA. So have you got any thoughts on where dietitians should be heading, what we should be thinking, maybe what DAA should be doing or achieving? Well, I'd, I'd really like to acknowledge what DAA has achieved in its 40 years yes, now. Yes, indeed, yeah. Um, in that we have, we are seen as being the experts and we are invited to sit at the table um, with um, when it's around policy and um, uh, things like that. Uh, so I, I do think that DAA has positioned us well and people might not appreciate that from when we graduated and basically dietitians were in hospitals mm -hmm. and that was about it and sometimes they were next to the kitchen and that was a, you know they weren't really regarded much more um than doing sort those of... ward rounds asking her do you want the jelly or the ice cream well that's exactly <laughs> right and if you know, that's one of the reasons for why i got out of clinical dietetics that i didn't think i needed four years of training to ask someone <laughs> if they wanted mashed potatoes or baked potatoes um and look and that's changed dramatically. So everything has changed. But um, so the opportunities are there. I guess as from a public health perspective, I would, I have, I still have some concerns about um, some of the DAA's relationships with some of the industry mm. things and how that's perceived by the public mm. as a as a conflict of interest. Mm. Um, and um, especially, you know, one of my big things is sometimes around the sponsorship at, at conferences or not so much even the sponsorship, but who's in the exhibition hall yeah. at, at, at conferences. And I vividly remember this from when, when I was first came back from Scotland and I went to the conference that was in Tasmania and um, 
McDonald's were there. And uh, in the inner pages of the paper in Adelaide, you know, like which is the equivalent of where they have all the who's who and the social stuff. Yes, yeah. There was this in the brief, advertiser you're talking about. Yeah, in, in the, the advertiser. Yeah, yeah. There was this brief little, you know, I, it was probably about you know three centimetres. Did you hear about the Dietitians Association conference that was being sponsored by McDonald's? Now, it wasn't being sponsored by McDonald's, mm. but that's the public perception if McDonald's are in the hall. Yes. And so I think we have, you know, I, and I know that that concerns a lot of public health nutritionists and that's, we've lost a lot of public health nutritionists from the association yes. because of that. So that's my main thing. Um, I think, you know, that what my other thing is that from a research point of view, I want to see dietitians. um, I think we've moved a long way and we understand evidence-based medicine. And we know how to apply evidence-based nutrition dietetics. I'd like to see dietitians generating the evidence mm. and seeing more um, of the clinical dietitians working as research dietitians and leading the research and not necessarily just being the person who collects the dietary yeah. data. Yeah. And sometimes you know, doesn't even get on the paper because the clinician may not see that them as actually having right. had a role. So I think I'd like to see dietitians generating the research questions, designing the studies, collecting the data, analysing, interpreting and contributing to our evidence base. Thanks, Jane. Thank you very much. It's been great talking to you. And, uh, I mean, you've had a great influence on me too. You've been very, very helpful in the, uh, well, my career and my thinking. So it's been great to have an opportunity to have a a brief chat. Thanks for your um, reveal on some of your personal information <laughs> as well. But uh, thanks to Jane. This is me, Glenn Cardwell, signing off. Back to you, Kate, in the studio. My thanks to Glenn and Jane for that insightful discussion. And thank you to the listeners for tuning in today. For our listeners, there will be some key points from this episode and some extra resources available on the show notes, and that'll be at dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you have enjoyed this episode, as well as the previous ones, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a review for us, as well as submit your feedback through the Dietitian Connection website. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Dietitian Connection podcast.